I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. What does the land of our ancestral family mean to us? Is there a a recognition of familiarity if all we know of a homeland are the stories that have been passed down? In Diana Abu-Jaber's newest novel, now out in paperback, the land of her father beckons Amani Hamdan. She felt it calling, she realizes, drawing her like a summons, attracting and frightening her as she entered. Diana Abu-Jaber is the author of both fiction and nonfiction. Her latest novel is titled Fencing with the King. We actually find her in Texas this morning, but she lives in Florida. Diana, welcome back to the show. It's really good to talk to you again. Thank you, Carrie. It's good to be here. I found this idea that uh, propels the novel, you know, what does the homeland of our family mean to us, especially if we haven't seen it, we've only been exposed to it as kids, you know, through the lore and the legends that we hear about it. I found that really compelling. And, And I was interested in what you knew about the land of your father before you went there. I mean, what were you hearing about it as a kid? Mm hmm. Well, it was a huge part of my childhood mythology. Um, my father always planned to return to the Middle East. He hadn't expected to become an American, really. Um, all his brothers, his six brothers, came over to the United States to get their degrees, and he thought he would follow them and do the same thing and then return to Jordan like the rest of them. And so it was a big surprise to him to be raising a family in the United States. and. When I was growing up, I continually heard stories about the homeland and how we were all going to go back someday. And my father used to tell me and my sisters that, you know, even though we were born in the United States and we spoke English and we were Americans, that we were actually secretly Jordanian um, (laughs) and to not get confused about it. Um, yeah, it was something that loomed large in my imagination. And we did actually go back to Jordan um, several times throughout my childhood. So I did get to see it, um, but we never stayed as my father had planned. I thought I read somewhere that your father left Jordan because a marriage proposal had been refused and he was angry about that. Did I read that right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, Apparently, he launched a big campaign to woo um, one of his second cousins. And um, yes, as one does, who better to marry than your own family. And so he he was turned down summarily. And um, he was so offended that he thought, well, that's it. I'm going to go to America and I'll show her. I will you know, become an instant millionaire, as one does. <laughs> and, right. uh, yeah, yeah. So it was a revenge, revenge immigration is what that was doing. Yeah, the best of reasons. I know it is. It, you, everybody needs a little, a little rage, right, to propel them to, to a new life. Um, exactly. I've thought a lot about this idea of, I've thought about it, I guess, in a different way, this idea of a homeland and what it means, as you say, the mythology of it and what it means to a family's identity. After interviewing uh, Scott Mamaday, the poet, who 
yeah, who talks about the telling those stories and the oral tradition of it that families participate in is the true events and the legends are, are really essential to the cultural and family identity in a way that maybe the family, you know, it, it isn't even necessarily conscious, but this is weaving together the closeness of a family and creating a sense about who they believe they are in the world. And I wondered if that resonates with you. Very much so. Um, I think it must be a strange thing to to move to a new country and to raise your children in the country that you weren't raised in yourself because you see that your children turn into something um, different from from you, from how you view the world, your cultural values, everything shifts. And, um, and I think there might be something exciting, but a little bit heartbreaking about it. And so the stories and that cultural legacy is incredibly important. Um, it's really at the heart, the lifeblood of what a family is. Uh, for my father, it was his storytelling and it was his food, um, the cooking that really came to the fore and became something that we relied on. It became our looking glass, if you will, the way we saw ourselves as as a family unit. And, um, and it was incredibly important to me growing up because it informed how I saw myself. And then later it became a part of my artwork. You know, I I love your descriptions of food, and we've talked about that in other interviews. But I would, I think I'd appreciate hearing about what it was like when your father would cook, you know, the traditional food from Jordan, and you'd all gather around and he'd tell you stories about it. Could you just describe one of those one of those meals? What it was like? Mm. Well, his. Um one of his great specialties was stuffed grape leaves. And it was something that took him all day. Sometimes he'd let us help, which was fun. And we'd sit around the table together and we would roll. Um, you have a ritual to the creation of stuffed grape leaves. You put a certain amount of filling in and you are competitive with how much um, uh, width you give to your grape leaves. So the tighter the grape leaves, uh, the more skilled of a roller you are. And you tell stories as you do this. And so my really? father, huh. yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lovely kind of very meditative ritual that you go through. And it can take hours, um, depending on how many grape leaves you're rolling and how many helpers you have. And, and so, you know, that's how I associate these kinds of dishes. My dad would talk about you know, um, growing up in the little village um, outside of Amman, how um, they they had a kind of a, a teacher under the trees who would come and um, school the children outdoors. And, you know, and he would just kind of unwind into the experience of rolling the grape leaf, stacking it, talking about his childhood, um, moving us through all the different uh, layers, the notes, if you will, of what his childhood was like, the good, the bad, 
um, it was a sentimental and very personal experience. And, uh, yeah, I think of it very fondly. He didn't always let us help. I should, I should add, he was, um, <laughs> kind of an overbearing cook, <laughs> <So> <laughs> a control freak, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, when he led us, it was really, it was a pleasure. You know, I, I often wonder if people who emigrate like your dad did adjust to you know, the trauma of leaving everything that's familiar by telling themselves that it's, that's only temporary as your dad did, you know, yeah. when the war ends, the family will go back when the economic hardship is over, the family will go back. At what point do you remember your dad kind of accepting the fact that he probably you were going to go back for visits, but the family yeah. wasn't going to go back to live there. He wasn't going to recapture the, you know, this experience of being Jordanian in Jordan. It took a while. It took, it took almost his whole life, really, um, for him to accept that. Um, I went back as an adult. I had a Fulbright grant in the 90s. Um, this would have been about... Well, basically the same year that the novel is set, so 1995, 96. And um, when I was there, my dad came over to visit me. Um, I was going to be there for a year, so he came for about a month. And while he was there, he actually made an offer on a building. And he he surprised us all by doing this. He didn't tell anyone, and we didn't know that he had had this up his sleeve. And, uh, you know, he kind of sprang it on me. He said, okay, here it is. I'm going to finally have my restaurant because that was his dream. Um, it's going to be a family restaurant. You and your sisters are all going to come and work at it. And um, <laughs> we're going to have this family restaurant in Amman, Jordan. And, you know, it was, it was kind of remarkable and wonderful in a way, but my sisters and I, we were all married. We had families. We were living all across the United States, you know, and I said, dad, I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> I just don't think it's going to happen. And I think at that point, you know, it was kind of, um, it was a bit of a turning point for him because he finally had to reckon with his own, I don't want to call it dreams, but I think that was kind of it, his dreams of return. And the longer he was in the United States, the more he kind of accepted and became a part of it. But it took truly most of his working years. And I think when he retired, that that was kind of when he realized I, you know, I really have chosen this for my country. I really, I really have become an American because that was the point when he really could have gone back to Jordan and he ultimately chose not to. What did your mother, uh, did your mother kind of participate in the dream that yes, one day they'd go back to Jordan, maybe believing that it probably wasn't going to happen given, you know, the paths that you and your sister had chosen? My mom <laughs> was a saint. <laughs> it is a saint. She um, she's Irish Catholic, and um, you know she she kind of made a deal with my dad. I'm not sure it was ever 
a consciously created deal. But essentially, I think that what they did was they agreed that by staying in the United States, the culture of our home would be as Middle Eastern as they could make it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, mom, she did go along with my father's plan and she did accompany us and help us move several times back to Jordan. And it was always my father's decision to return to the United States. So she was supportive staff throughout the whole thing, but I know that she always felt American and that, um, that that was the country she was and is most comfortable uh, living in. So for her, it really came down to this deal that they cut. And so in our home, the food, the, the music, the culture was Jordanian. Um, as much as they could achieve. And then our setting, our actual setting was in the United States. Um, and, you know, they achieved a kind of balance that way. I, I, I know in a way it kind of was uncomfortable for both of them in certain respects because they were mm-hmm. both foreigners, if you will, um, just in different ways. And, you know, they made it work, but I think there was always a tension there. There was always a, an uneasiness or an uncertainty about who are we really? Where do we actually belong? Is there um, one centerpiece to our existence? And, you know, sometimes there simply is not. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my conversation with novelist Diana Abu Jaber. She's the author of both fiction and nonfiction. Her newest novel is titled Fencing with the King. It's now out in paperback. And we're talking this morning about some of the ideas and the experiences that propel the novel in Diana's own life and then the life that she creates in this novel for her characters. Um, Diana, I want to ask you more about um, how you wove the history of your father's family into the novel, but I think it would be valuable for listeners to hear kind of the outline of the plot. Would you Would you just mind giving us kind of a blueprint of where we begin and what happens? Sure. Um, the novel is essentially set in a Mon Jordan, and um, there's a family, Gabe, Gabe Hamdan, and his daughter Amani have returned to Jordan ostensibly they've returned because Gabe has been invited to a kind of exhibition, a fencing exhibition with King Hussein of Jordan. Amani wants to go back because she is trying to find out basically who she is. And um, she has discovered a, a letter tucked away in her father's books that seems to be from her grandmother. Jordan is a mystery to Amani. It's something that her father never talks about. He's never returned in in over 30 years of being in the United States. And she has become kind of obsessed with discovering what it is that her father has run away from and what the meaning of this letter is that she has discovered um, tucked away. And so they, they return to Jordan and Amani goes on a quest that leads her to some kind of remarkable places and she discovers things about herself and the family that she could never have predicted um but i won't give anything more away than that there are discoveries that are made 
That is perfect because, and I just, I want you to know that as a reader, I loved the adventurousness of her experience in Jordan. You mm. took us to so many places. I mean, you, you ignited a real desire in me to see Jordan because no. you took us outside of the cities and just this beautiful way of describing, far, you know, farther flung corners of the country. I just, I just want you to know that as a novelist, mission accomplished on that because oh. um, I'm planning a trip uh, sometime. So here's what I, I'm interested in too. I mean, you, you inform us of, or you weave in a lot of the stories of the Bedouin culture. Your father is descended from Bedouins, is that right? That's correct, yes. And how far back into his family um, were, were the ancestors that were Bedouin? Oh, boy, that, that goes back for generations. Um, wow. There are some family histories that are written about it, and they've traced the family to different um, countries, but, you know, the thing about the Bedouin culture, of course, is that it's nomadic. So mm -hmm. um, I know that we have roots kind of scattered around the Middle East. And uh, I know it goes far beyond my great-great-grandfather. So, um, yeah, I think it's something that is deep in our family history. And does the – I know there are still Bedouin in the Middle East and in Jordan – how are they yes. how are they seen in um you know by the the rest of the uh, Jordanian community mm. it's a mixed kind of reception because you know the bedouin they tend to be an underclass they don't have a lot they um they don't tend to be wealthy they you know sometimes they're undereducated um and they're also, in a sense, they're discouraged because it's very hard to um, identify and quantify a Bedouin person. Um, in some respects, you might see them as tantamount to homeless, uh, the way mm -hmm. we look at unhomed people in this country. Um, and that's because the context, the cultural context of their way of life has shifted so much. Um, from being a, a highly nomadic culture to being one that is largely settled and, and very much westernized. Um, so that the Bedouin then has moved from being the majority to being the minority and being sort of um, marginalized and, and discouraged. You know, a lot of their dwellings have been um, made off limits, especially the cave dwellers, um, it's hard. It's hard to be a Bedouin in Jordan now. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a loss in many ways. It's a disappearing way of life. Hmm. I mean, there's also a storyline in the novel, and I, and I think you've drawn this from your father's history as well, about Amani, the, the main character who's the poet who has gone back to Jordan with her father. Her grandmother, Natalia, is Palestinian, and she has left Palestine as a as a young girl. I mean, this was, I have to say, this was really instructive and enlightening for me, how 
Palestinians are seen in a place like Jordan mm. because in the story, um, even one of the grandmother's sons, and this is Amani's uncle, believes mm-hmm. that his father was weak because he chose to marry a Palestinian woman. And she yeah. is seen as being kind of obsessed with the past. So I'd love your perspective on how Palestinians are seen um, and maybe your experience of learning about uh, you know, these descendants in your dad's family. It's such a complicated situation. Um, mm-hmm. because the Palestinians, you know, um, so many of them had to come into Jordan under duress. They didn't want to come. Um, and so they were seeking refuge. They were, um, you know, fleeing military occupation. Um, they were fleeing um, the end of the Turkish uh, empire. There was a lot of... Um, a lot of drama and hardship that they experienced in coming to Jordan. And the Jordanians were welcoming, and they are incredibly um, welcoming people. Hospitality is considered one of the, the great virtues that is descended from the Bedouins. But there are political and economic realities that happen when you have a huge influx of people seeking sanctuary. And and it caused a lot of conflict, a lot of uncertainty. The the Jordanians who had been there for, you know, generations untold saw this as a kind of encroachment, possible a threat, um, a kind of threat to the culture. The Palestinians who are incredibly proud people, very educated, very cultured, um, saw themselves as semi-welcomed or even unwelcomed, Mm. um, considered an underclass. And many of them uh, lived in refugee camps and very difficult situations. Um, And many of them insisted on continuing in refugee camps because they felt so strongly that return was imminent, that they would be going back to their homes. Um, So in a way, it creates this, this culture of uncertainty and um, and the kind of tension that is almost inevitable when you have this kind of influx, I, I think that it has it has improved. the The cultures have grown together. The people have become more and more um, accepting. Um, it has become more stable. But it's always a kind of open question: Who am I? If I have to leave my homeland, if I have to go to a new place do I take that homeland with me? And that's something that I see in South Florida, you know, among Mm -hmm. the the Cubans and Miami. I I feel like it's a very similar kind of uh, dynamic that happens when you have expatriates, when you have people fleeing. Um, Do you take the culture with you? Do you accept the new culture? How incorporated do you become? These are all really complicated and, and kind of sensitive questions. Yeah, it's. It, I think it's such an interesting dimension <clears throat> to what we were talking about earlier, which is what your dad experienced, this idea that I've come here and this land, the United States in his case, has helped 
make a man out of me and a success, um, yet longing, right, for the homeland. I mean, with the Palestinians, there is this deep belief that one day they will be able to have the homeland the way they they imagine it and yet yeah. and yet they're in the so but they're in another land and many are holding themselves apart right from the experience yes. of um becoming part of that new community because i i think you touch on that in such an interesting way because this grandmother who is palestinian is seen even by her children as being obsessed mm -hmm. with the past and and otherworldly in a way right because all she yeah. wants is to have to go back to palestine do i do i have that that's that's absolutely correct she she is uh longing for the past and um her son thinks of her as a kind of prisoner of the past um because it was something that I saw traces of in my own family, um, those relatives that were from Palestine, of, of a Palestinian background, uh, how they talked about their homeland with such longing and um, uh, almost, a, almost an unreality and uh, such a strong resistance to the current you know, situation of living in a new country and um, with a new identity. Um, so yes, Natalia, she can't quite accept where she is. And so for herself, she seeks refuge. She seeks her new identity and her new country in books, um, which is apparently something that my grandmother did as well. I never met her myself, but I heard that she was famous for collecting books and that when anyone came to her home, they knew don't bring flowers, don't bring candy, don't bring food, bring books. And, and <laughs> oh, that wow. was how she did it. Yeah. Wow. So your author's note uh, says that your grandparents sheltered at one point the future king of Jordan during political yes. unrest. W was this the grandmother who was Palestinian who married the Jordan the young Jordanian man? It was indeed, yes. Wow. Um, she, uh, yes, she was part of that cultural history. And uh, yeah, the Abu Jaber family um, was very much involved in the creation of modern modern Jordan oh and the monarchy. Gosh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> how do you, how do you, I know stories have come down through the family, but are there, are there diaries and journals or are there, sources like that that you that you learned more about how integral they were to what jordan is today it was really hard to get documents that was something that you know i i did look for and there are some books there is um one of my uncles wrote a book called uh pioneers over jordan i believe is the translation um, that was a kind of family history that it, it's, um, you have to search for it. It's a little bit hard to find, but it is translated into English. And um, what I really relied on was oral history. You know, I interviewed tons and tons of people. And, um, you know, I spent time 
in Jordan. And also a lot of my family is now in the United States and just talking to people about their recollections, um, their own kind of experiences. Unfortunately, you know, the past is, is disappearing day by day. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you kind of have to rely on, on memory for a lot of this and, and from their imagination. How connected um, is your current family to the royal family, given these deep t- ties that um, hmm. your family had? I, you know, that's such a good question. And I'm not sure. I feel like the royal family has changed enormously with the death of King Hussein. It was a real turning of the tide. Queen Noor moved back to the United States. And, and in a sense, a whole way of life, the whole, the whole Jordanian monarchy really changed its identity. I feel like it's a new generation now with King Abdullah um, and his, his new kind of approach. He's very Western. He's very um, mm-hmm. progressive in many ways, but he's also a monarch. So um, he has inherited a lot of those same issues and complexities. Can democracy and monarchy coexist? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I was curious about that question. Um, when's the last time that you went back to Jordan? Gosh, it's been a while now. I think it's been, oh, it's been well over 10 years since I've been okay. back to Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how you wrestle with that. Because with a monarchy, like in a monarchy, I guess, the way it's shaped in the Middle East, um, mm-hmm. you know, there is there is rulemaking and I guess a certain amount of oppression, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you how do you think about that, given your experience yeah. growing up as a as an American, but your respect for the Jordanian side of the family? Yeah, it's tricky. It's a real balancing act. You know, I was raised on the myth. I was raised on the legends of um, King Hussein, his his generosity, his compassion, his beneficence as a ruler. Um, you know, my father did fence with King Hussein. He was, he was part of our image of what the great and good king should be and could be. And then as an adult, you know, reality starts to leak in and you see that, that he had to um, take you know, all sorts of measures to ensure his, um, his rulership and to fend off attacks and um, coup, uh, you know, attempts and, um, and all sorts of incursions from all sides. He was really beset. You know, you hear rumors about him cooperating with various foreign entities. Uh, to me, this is, this is the reality of what it means to be a, a ruler and especially mm-hmm. to try to be a monarch. Um, you are always going to be fending off attacks. It's just going to, it's part of the job description. <laughs> um, and, uh, and 
there's an ugliness, absolutely. And I, I do think that his son, Abdullah, has inherited a lot of this and, and is now struggling with so much of it himself. Um, mm. So it, there's almost a question about, can one hold on to one's moral compass when one is put in a position of absolute power? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a really difficult question, and it goes to a kind of existential question about what are human beings capable of if we are given the idea of absolute power, can we hold on to our humanity? I, and that is something that I think is an ongoing question. I'm trying to think of any any ruler in the world who has that kind of power, who who has managed the balance. I can't think mm. of one. Can you? You know, it's really tricky. Um, in in the case of the United Kingdom, you know, I think that what happens there is that the monarchy becomes more of a metaphor than a governing body. And, and that's one way of doing it. You know, they can be advisors, they can be very important to the cultural identity of their community, but not necessarily the governing body. And that seems to me a way to do it. To, to divide the idea of monarchy from the actual running of things, um, mm-hmm. which for good or for ill, it seems that democracy really is one of the one of the best systems that we've been able to come up with as people. There's another thing before we talk about fencing. There's another thing that I remembered from a previous conversation with you, which is. I think we talked about a time in your writing career when publishers were not all that interested in stories about Arabs, mm. Arab women, uh, women that come from a part of the world that I think Americans are still, you know, woefully uninformed about. And then I read this novel and there's this rich storyline about what Palestine means to this character, and I learned a lot about the history of Palestine through through reading your your uh, novel. Has that changed? I guess did you mm. has the moment come when you can write more nuanced and fully developed characters about, uh, and, and that the publishing industry is more accepting? That's such a good question, Carrie, <laughs> and and it's one that. I think is always kind of getting examined and um, turned around and around. I I want to say yes, resoundingly things have improved and and definitely you know if you go into any wonderful bookstore and you know look at what's on the the front shelves and the front tables, you definitely see. Uh, a wider, much wider diversity of identities, names, voices, that has all shifted dramatically. Um, uh, for for Palestine, for the Middle East, um, I think that that is one of the more uphill battles. 
Um, I think it there is certainly more breakthrough books and more breakthrough voices. Um, and I, you know, and now names are coming into my head, but I, I kind of hesitate to name them because I'm going to forget people. Um, mm-hmm. But so many more Arab and Arab American voices are being published now with mainstream publishers from from all the the you know the mainstream voices as well as great independent publishers so yes but with a asterisk next to it still a work in progress still still some hesitation still some uncertainty um i'm reading let me see. I'm reading Love Marriage by Monica Ali. Um, mm-hmm. just to, I'll just give one one name. Um, <laughs> and and I really I'm loving it because it's talking about Islam in in all its subtleties. Uh, it's talking about you know the intersections of race and religion and culture, and it's giving us a really beautifully nuanced perspective on what it means to to be Muslim in an Anglo society um, and how one is looked at and how you can sort of try to present yourself in one way and and then be accused of selling out. So, you know, reading this book, to me, this book is uh, is evidence that we've we've elevated the conversation, that it's reached the next level that it's become more sophisticated and just more representative of what the reality is for so many of us from all different cultures. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Diana, because, you know, I really believe, and and this is because I love books and you do too, you're going to agree with this, I'm sure. But <laughs> there is something about learning, as you've said, the nuances of a place that is foreign, a culture that feels unfamiliar, a long-time conflict, right, that seems, I think, sitting on this side of the world, hopeless and uninteresting. Mm -hmm. Fiction has the power to bring you right back into that, into that world and that experience. And um, boy, the enlightenment yes. that can come through that is really essential. But without those voices and the visibility of those voices, um, that's that's a whole part of understanding. I think that gets left behind. I, I'm I'm really happy to hear you say that publishing is changing slowly but surely. Is that is that a yeah. fair way to say it? I, I do think so. I mean, I I see that it's happening in terms of representation in who is publishing books, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the editors and the agents, um, their identities are changing as well. And that is just automatically very helpful to opening things up, to broadening the conversation. And, and I do want to add that this isn't about erasing the voices that came before, this is about adding to them. This is about enlarging things. So, um, you know, sometimes I think people can feel a little threatened, like, oh, the old ways are, are going away. 
Um, mm-hmm. No, the the old ways are there as well. You know, American literature is going to be um, building on the, its great foundations. You know, the great classics will always be there. We're adding to them now, and that makes it much much healthier, a much bigger, healthier, more exciting conversation. You're listening to a discussion with Diana Abu Jaber uh, about her new novel, Fencing with the King. If you've tuned in, you've heard us talking about how her own family experience, how the homeland of Jordan has figured very influentially in Diana's upbringing and um, her father's history there, and then the experience of going back to Jordan and then setting this new novel there. But we've also talked about other voices, other um, representations in fiction of some of the places that uh, Americans don't read often enough about. So if you've missed part of the conversation, you can find the whole thing on the podcast, and I hope you'll listen in to that. Okay, I want to talk about fencing, because the novel is called Fencing with the King. (laughs) And you just said that your dad really did fence with the king of Jordan. Uh, How did that happen? Well, um, I am not entirely sure. Uh, This kind of thing used to happen with my father all the time. You know, it's like he had a before and after life. (laughs) And um, his before life, it was largely um, filtered through the military. He joined the, the Jordanian Air Force as a young man. And um, and he was handpicked uh, among a, a small cadre of other men to basically be trained in some of these you might call them royal sports or or, or kingly kingly sports you know uh-huh. so things like fencing and uh, polo and um, falconry and all these kinds of um, activities that are very much a part of the Jordanian national heritage. And so dad, he was trained to basically spar with King Hussein. And this was something he never talked about when, when we were growing up. Yeah. I didn't know that he even knew how to fence until I was an adult. Um, I was telling some friends the other day about how once we went to this dude ranch um, and my sisters and I, we were going to sign up for, um, you know, beginning horseback riding. And the owner came out with his magnificent horse and dad leapt on it and galloped away. (laughs) (laughs) What? It was just so weird. And, uh, you know, this kind of thing used to happen all the time where we would suddenly see glimpses of this, this earlier life and fencing was absolutely part of it. You know, did you take lessons before you, you wrote these scenes for the novel? I took one lesson. I went to, I went to a a fencing club in, in Florida and I I took one lesson and I did not care for it. Really? Why? (laughs) I I didn't like the mask. I felt, I felt Mm. sort of enclosed in, in all that, protective gear and um i'm sure if i'd stuck with it you know eventually i would have overcome but uh, it, it 
I will just say I am not a natural fencer, but um, <laughs> unlike Amani in the novel, yes, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, well, what's okay? So that's interesting to hear. You only took one lesson because I feel like, and we're going to hear this in the excerpt. I feel like you captured not mm. just the physicality, the external, the watching of the physicality of it, but you really captured what that feels like in your body to to be fencing so this all just comes from the power of imagination and description i guess right you know a, a lot of watching a lot of observation i did watch a lot of Got it. Uh, fencing matches and and that was incredibly instructive um but yes definitely a lot of imagination as well Okay, so th so the excerpt is a scene from the novel where Amani has been talked into taking a lesson on fencing by a man who runs a school for fencing and he's becoming a romantic interest. And so she doesn't really just want to say absolutely not. So she kind of gets uh, persuaded to do this. What else do you want to say before we hear it? Um, she She is not certain about this experience, but um, she's intrigued by her fencing instructor, the, the man who she's watching fence. And he is someone who is leading her into another way of looking at her cultural identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Fencers like to say, we're born to the sword. He leaned back as she angled the blade in his direction. Yes, you've got it, in your hand, the position of your body. You have a feeling for this sport. You should try it out. Oh, really? No, no. She noticed some of the men watching her hold the foil. I don't know. I think we should try another time. Following her eyes, Eduardo glanced at the men lounging against the walls, arms folded over chest. This is the most perfect time, he nodded at Amani. Come, please, this way. She tried to hang back, but he went out to the strip and beckoned. They were bathed in light at the center of the room. She felt the men's gaze on her skin and the blood filled her face. Eduardo showed her where to stand, how to close her hand properly around the grip, how to lift her arms. Shoulders down, please, a firm grip, but don't squeeze. Keep your elbow in line with the tip of your weapon. He moved behind her. There. Have you ever taken dance lessons? There are foot positions also with this sport. First position, second position. Bend your knees, this foot back. He touched her hip and she felt her breath shift in her chest. She accidentally moved her right foot, then adjusted her left. Don't think. You just have to let the body speak. It's instinctive. He moved closer. People have always fenced. Children fence with sticks. Did you know there are pictures of the old Egyptians fighting with blades? It's second nature. Truly, it is. He put his hand over hers, raising the foil. With his other hand, he guided her waist. His touch warmed her skin. Amani felt almost feverish. Her sense of the world beyond the peace softened. From behind her ear, he asked, Imagine your opponent before you. Can you envision it? 
Amani smiled and said weakly, not really. Remember, your opponent may try to dissemble, fake a lunge, then perhaps to intimidate, attack left, he said quietly. Perry riposte. His flat shoes took half steps behind hers, thrust right, Perry left. I don't know what all that means, she said breathlessly, trying to follow his movements. Dance steps, he laughed. Don't be worried. You have those old ways inside you. You're a natural fencer. <laughs> Diana Abu-Java reading an excerpt from her newest novel, Fencing with the King, now out in paperback. You know, Diana, I, I rarely talk about book covers, even though they're pretty interesting, and the culture of book covers is interesting. Mm -hmm. But this cover, oh my mm -hmm. gosh, it is beautiful. <laughs> so tell me the story. Let's describe it. It's an image of a falcon. It's the, the falcon has its back to the reader, but its head is turned, so you see its head in profile. And it's perched um, above what looks like a, a kind of ancient archway, perhaps from one of the old crusader castles, um, kind of a, an ancient, barely visible design. And then above the perch is this beautiful bank of clouds and sky. And it's just gorgeously done. It's, it's um, very elegantly rendered. And as soon as I saw it, I just kind of caught my breath. Oh, I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> okay. I, I thought maybe this was a back and forth with you saying, no, I'd really love <laughs> to have the symbolism of the... No, they came up with this and sent it, and you were like, yes, I love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. yes, it really... <laughs> How often I mean, does that happen? Oh, never, never. I, I've had so many book covers where, you know, they'll ask, your publisher and I love Norton. Norton is is the most wonderful, um, but they will always ask, you know, what do you think about the book cover? And you give your earnest opinion, and they say, mm -hmm, and they listen closely, and then they do exactly <laughs> what they want to do. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, this was really just um, so exciting to see this cover, and and I'm really excited about the. Um, the paperback cover as well. The paperback cover is a little bit different from what I described. Um, it also has the, the falcon on it, but it's a little bit, a, mm. a slightly different position, but equally beautiful, if not more so. Uh, it is. It is vivid and colorful yeah. and beautiful. Diana, thank you so much. I am grateful that I, I got a chance to talk to you about this novel. I had a, I had a lot of curiosity about it. Thank you. Well, Thank you so much, Carrie. It was great fun. 